uh, yet again. I always uh, appreciate the young people. I used to be a <clears throat> high school and college pastor and counting the time I was going to school. Spent uh, seven years in that particular arena uh, before most of your parents were born. So I understand. Uh, I appreciate so much you being here and uh, all uh, the rest of you look forward actually uh, to the rest of the day as well. Now, our place of residence today is going to be in Psalm 19, a pretty famous psalm. <clears throat> and I am going to be reading large chunks of it as we go along, so maybe we'll skip the actual reading today and you can catch along as we move through the message itself. Uh, the title that I've given this is The Self-Revelation of God. Uh, and the word revelation comes, obviously, from the word reveal. And if you reveal yourself um, to other people by what you say or what you create or what you uh, do, uh, they're able to, uh, in a sense, you're able to make yourself known to them. And when you make yourself known to other people, they discern who you are, what you like, and to what you're really committed. Now, when you consider the popularity of social media today, you realize just how important it is for individuals to be known by other people. And God happens to be a person, and he wants to be known by us as well. And uh, our text, um, in our text, God makes himself known in two different ways. One by the world, and the other by his word. And each one of these is freighted with a lot of implications, and I Hope to be simple as I share them with you today. So let's begin with the first point on your sermon outline. The world reveals the existence of God and the nature of God. Begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> the heavens declare the glory of God. Their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but their line has gone through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. And the implication here is simply this, that all people at all times can gaze at the heavens and the splendor of the heavens and realize that uh, God has created the world. Uh, in other words, what we see out there each and every day and each and every night uh, bespeaks of a creator that's behind it. So creation itself so obviously uh, reveals the existence and the nature of God that God holds us responsible for recognizing that there's a God behind the created order. Romans chapter 1, there's a verse in there that makes it very clear. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what he has made so that you and I are without excuse. In other words, if an individual claims to be an atheist, they can't claim 
to be an atheist for lack of information. They can't do it. So God has left a very large footprint of himself through the created order. And if we don't see it, then it's willful ignorance on our own part. Now Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John 1.1, and a little bit beyond that, said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. All things came through him and by him. So in the beginning, what it's saying, when the universe was created, God was already there. And if your existence predates history, then you're non-created. And if you're non-created, then you're eternal. So the splendor of the created order is what theologians call the cosmological argument for the existence of God. In other words... In the cosmological argument, it's saying that the universe itself uh, is an effect that, is, that connotes a cause. And some would say, well, the universe is self-created. And that's kind of a logical contradiction, uh, because for something to be self-created, it must exist and not exist at the same time. Now, our text says that the universe gives a continuous day after day, night after night, and a universal. Lines have gone out through all the earth of the testimony and the splendor of God. Now, related to the cosmological argument is the teleological argument for God. In other words, when we look at the universe itself, uh, we discover order. We discover design. And that means that uh, however it got here, it needed a designer. Random activity could never produce the highly integrated complexity that we see in the world today. Now, I would suppose that there would be some probability if an explosion occurred at a print factory and all of the ink and all of the paper went high in the air, that it's possible for the paper to come down with Shakespeare's Hamlet written on it. But if you bet your life on it, you would be foolish. Now, smart people, really smart people, have known for a long time that the mathematical probability of evolution by natural selection is zero. And no amount of time can be brought into the equation to change those particular odds simply because time is not causative. So God reveals himself in creation, but creation doesn't give us a complete revelation of God. Uh, creation doesn't tell us about the Trinity. God exists in three persons, but one essence. Creation doesn't tell us about our sin or the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Uh, creation doesn't tell us of our infinite value to God and the future he has for all humankind. So, if we're to know God just a little bit more intimately, or more intimately, I should say, then we need something a little bit more detailed than the revelation of the created order. And this really brings us to the second point, which is simply this. We go to the Bible to find out more detailed information. And the Bible is called God's Word simply because God is the author of it. 
He is the one that inspired writers to, to take down what he, in fact, what the Spirit of God says, to record the message of God in detail. Now, what our text does do is it highlights, and under the special revelation, it highlights one particular attribute of God. We know that God has a number of attributes, but this highlights one of them. And the attribute that Psalm 19 highlights is the righteousness of Christ. Now, when we talk about the righteousness of God, righteousness of Jesus, what we mean is that God always acts in accordance with that which is right. He is the final standard of that which is right. Now, thankfully, our omnipotent God, our all-powerful God, is righteous, and therefore we know that justice is always going to prevail. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a subject under a God that was not righteous, who was capable of doing that which is wrong. We would live in constant fear. Listen to the words of the psalmist as well as he continues on in verse 7. He says, The law of the Lord, and this is, would be the scriptures, the word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect, it restores the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening our eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The righteousness of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. You see, the law brings about, just, just what he just said, the law brings about restoration, wisdom, rejoicing, enlightenment, endurance, and righteousness. No wonder it's more valuable than gold. No wonder it's sweeter than honey. You see, the law of the Bible, when we talk about the law of God, we're not talking about that part of the Bible uh, where the rules are. We're talking about the entire message of the Bible that becomes your and my rule for life itself. Uh, It's the story of God sending his son to die. You remember the parable of the prodigal son. And I, I mention the prodigal son just about every single week for some reason. And I'll probably do it again next week. I, I don't know for sure. But the younger son asks for his share of the inheritance. And he takes it to a foreign land. And he squanders it on profligate living. And then when that repentant son reper- returns to his dad, he doesn't ask for sonship. He asks for servanthood. But in the beauty in the administration of grace and mercy, what, uh, when, when the servant humbly bows before the king, the king becomes a father, and the servant becomes a son, and he's given the robe and the ring and the fatted calf, and it's all because of the grace of God. Uh, so to delight in the law of the Lord is really to drop your anchor into the gospel. And the gospel is really the key thing of why we all meet here today. Uh, The gospel itself is the realization that 
when sin entered the world on our, with our first parents, Adam and Eve, and then that sin nature was passed on to all people of all generations, you and me, we have a sin nature in us, uh, that sin nature causes us to be separated from God because God is perfect and holy and we're sinful. We can't come into his presence. And so the gospel is the idea of Jesus coming to earth paying the price for our sin, well, I should say, living that perfect life and then going to the cross as an innocent lamb and paying the price of eternal death for your sin and in my sin. But having our sins forgiven is not enough for a ticket to heaven. We also need something else, and we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus came as the innocent lamb and there on the cross, God did a double transaction. He took all of our sin and put it on Christ. And Christ died and paid the price for that. Then he took all of the righteous life of Jesus and put it on us. And it's both the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that we get from Christ that gives us that ticket to heaven. In other words, God the Father, because of the gospel, treated Jesus as if he had lived your life and my life, so he could treat us as if we lived Jesus' life. It's a remarkable thing. It's, it's the gospel. It's why we meet here. So the gospel takes that which is dead, you and me, and makes us spiritually alive. And then it guides us into righteous behavior. Now, the word righteous, and now we talked about the one attribute that's highlighted here in Psalm 19. The word righteous means right. Uh, it means straight. Those who keep the law are, are called straight. Those who break the law are crooked. That's why we call lawbreakers crooks. <laughs> Makes sense. So the law reflect, reflects God's character and God's character is the straight edge by which we always measure life. Right from wrong, good from bad, kind from cruel. And so we ask ourselves, well, why is telling the truth right and lying bad? Because God is a God of truth. Why is justice right and injustice wrong? Because God is just. Why is loving right and hating or being indifferent wrong? Because God is love. In other words, all Moral and ethical behavior finds its, 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 its status right in the character of God himself. You know, when communism fell in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union some 30 years ago, uh, it was secularism itself that really failed during that time. And secularism is simply a worldview that leaves God out. Now, it thrives in the university classroom, but when it's brought out of the classroom into functional life, secularism is always going to be crushed under the weight of civilization. Countries built on secularism eventually collapse because of corruption. It's impossible, it's impossible to construct a document that will guide behavior without moral absolutes. We absolutely have to have them. In a stunning speech, this is what the Prime Minister of Bulgaria said way back in 1989. Listen to these words. 
He's making a speech and he says, we need a return to normalcy in our country. Not just consensual politics and rational economics, but to a civil society that functions on the basis of moral values. Moral confusion under communism was accompanied by utter confusion of values. People thought nothing of cheating and stealing. There was no place on which to lean as people concluded that belief in God was outdated. The whole history of mankind has proven that without God's moral authority, the things most precious to humans are denied. That's what he said. Now, America... Uh, was founded uh, on the, uh, was established on the foundation of a strong Judeo-Christian value and virtue. Uh, and it's given us stability as a country in the midst of the shifting sands of secularism. And our country will remain strong as long as the Justice Department doesn't continue to redefine virtue, because things that used to be categorically bad are now more acceptable. Things that were accepted as good are now negotiable. There's some compromise going on, and it's important we stay on track as a country to the values on which it was actually established. You see, when virtue is rejected by the masses in favor of moral relativism, we're going to self-destruct from the decay, from just simply decay, just like the Roman Empire did. You know, some years ago, uh, Ohio State University opened up what is called the Wexner Center of Performing Arts. And Newsweek magazine at that time called it the, America's first deconstructionist building. In other words, uh, you go into the building, and I've never been there, but uh, you go into the building, and everything is different. There are stairs that lead to nowhere. There are pillars that are hanging down from the ceiling without purpose. And the angled surfaces are designed to create a sense of vertigo uh, that are there. And uh, the structure, this is, the structure was designed to reflect what they believed was the senselessness and incoherency of life itself. Interestingly, the building rests on a solid rock foundation. <laughs> you know, what reflects the double standard uh, of atheism itself. You see, atheists talk about uh, restructuring society in such a way that moral relativism reigns. And yet, when philosophical anarchy in the classroom becomes functional anarchy in our culture, we're going to witness the collapse of reason. Uh, some time ago, I heard about an interesting incident that took place in a university a philosophy class. First day of class, you've got students there, uh, young men, young women that are standing before the professor. And he asked them a question. He says, how many of you believe in moral absolutes? And almost unanimously, they said, no, we don't believe in moral absolutes. Morals are personal and shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be imposed upon other people. And it was really a trick question because the professor, after they said that, said this, well, let me tell you how I grade this, this college class. 
All of you young ladies are going to fail regardless of how strong your papers are and how well you took the exams. And there was this immediate outcry of protest. That's not fair. And he says, well, it may not be fair to you, but it's fair to me. You know, it's just fair to me. In other words, don't impose your morality on me. And they got the point. They got the point. Uh, Sartre, French existentialist, he said this about the Nuremberg trials in print. He said, if there is no God, you can't judge the Nazis for being wrong. They just saw things their own way. You see, there's no way to deny moral absolutes in the crucible of life. We can't survive without them, whether we admit it or not. Uh, whenever moral relativists, by the way, uh, whenever moral relativists are outraged by something in our culture, including the actions of a serial killer, what they're doing in being outraged is smuggle, smuggling biblical doctrine into their relativistic values. You understand that. Now, Moral relativism occasionally finds itself in the church. And, uh, you know, Christians have asked me over the years questions like, well, I know what I'm doing flies in the face of traditional Christian morality, but will God punish me if I continue? And the first thing that comes to my mind is, why in the world are you afraid of incurring the wrath of God, but don't care about violating the wisdom of God? It's like a, a, a man in downtown Manhattan wanting to jump off a 50-story building, but first wants to know whether or not it's against the law so he won't get fined. <laughs> Who cares about the fine? I mean, the punishment is inherent in the violation. You see, if you move against the law, you really move against wisdom. And wisdom is an attribute of God, and what God has done with his attributes, including wisdom, he has woven wisdom into the fabric of the universe so that wisdom itself becomes a ruling reality. And if you move against wisdom, you're moving against yourself, and you're hopping on the path of self-destruction. You know, the moral compass of many today is say, well, you know, I can really do anything I want as long as I don't hurt anybody else. And yet life doesn't work that way. Not at all. If, if, I t if I don't tell a lie, I'm going to hurt my colleague. If I tell a lie, I'm going to hurt my boss. You've got ethical gridlock. You see, most reject the message of the Bible because it feels that they rest it restricts freedom. You know, they don't want to be stifled by moral restraint, if you please. Paradoxically, when we cast off moral strength, our moral uh, restraint, I should say, uh, were stifled. You know, there's another French existentialist named Camus, and he wrote really an insightful novel. Uh, many of you probably have read it sometime in college. It's entitled The Fall. It's Camus' novel here. And the central character of the, of the novel was a Parisian lawyer named Jean-Baptiste Clemence. 
And Clements yearned for, transis- for, for, for transcendence. But he rejected God on the basis of moral constraints. He wanted to indulge himself with harlots whenever he wanted to and drink and become inebriated for nights on end. And he did that. But he says this in the book, I awoke the next morning with the bitter taste of my mortal state. In other words, the pleasures in which we, he indulged were absolutely enslaving, but not only that, they were disconnected from his ultimate desires, and they contributed to his sense of despair. And when we ignore the law of God, no matter how much structure we put in our lives, we're going to continue to feel like a random accident when everything in our being cries out for substance, value, and beauty. So, the law is not dreadful, it's delightful. It's more desirable than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. Now, finally, we come to uh, look at the last point here, and that is the response of God's servant, and uh, that is obedience. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his own heirs? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from from presumptuous sin. Let not them rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Now, what the text does is it speaks of two kinds of sins. There are hidden faults and presumptuous sins. Now, we're guilty of hidden faults when we are insensitive, uh, when we're careless, uh, when we say something that just comes off the top of our head and we don't realize at times just how cutting it is. And oftentimes we regret it as soon as the words cascade from our lips. Uh, And we're all guilty of hidden faults. We're all guilty of insensitivity. And oftentimes... We don't learn about it until a little bit later. We're unaware of the sinfulness at the time, but then when we begin to think about it, we say, my goodness, why in the world did I say that? Why did I do that? But there's not only hidden faults, but there's also the presumptuous sins. And the presumptuous sins occur when we presume to know better what will bring us happiness in life than God does. And presumptuous sins are with forethought. They're with intentionality. They're premeditated. It's, it's a rebellion, uh, and you just venture into something with your eyes open. Uh, the second thing that we, we need to learn is this. Well, let me put it this way. The author is reminding us in this particular case on the importance of what we call, biblical terms, sanctification. And sanctification is just simply a six-bit term that talks about us growing more and more into the personal likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and just in that whole process of sanctification, when we understand it, we want to become more and more like Jesus, we learn that our own sinful nature is going to, at times, just simply baffle us. 
It's going to sneak up and we're going to do things that we go, oh my goodness, why in the world did I do that? Why did I say that? But not only that, we also learn that when we're wrestling with a baffling uh, corruption or a hidden faults, uh, we can have a measure of victory over the presumptuous sins, those that are done with forethought, if we simply rely on the grace and the power of God. So, from Psalm 19, we learn a couple of things. We learn about God. From the world, we learn that God exists and that God is glorious. From his word, we learn that God is righteous and God is wise. We also learn something about us. From the world, we learn that we must acknowledge the existence and the majesty of God. We look up and we see the world, God exists and God is majestic. From the word, we learn to give God our allegiance and our love. And then he concludes in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now the only way the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be acceptable to God is if Jesus Christ is our rock and our redeemer. You know, and if God is not in your life, then embrace the gospel. Uh, make the innocent lamb that died for you your rock, your redeemer. If you do, it'll lead to a life of wisdom and of worship. And we want to include our, conclude our, our, our time this morning with uh, taking the elements, uh, reminding ourselves that uh, it was the voluntarily voluntary death of the Lord Jesus Christ that merits for us our salvation. And he instituted this uh, just before he exited this earth, just before he was crucified in what is called the upper room discourse. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember what I've done. Remember how much I love you. Remember how instrumental I am in the quality of life that you live. Just remember me regularly. That's why we do it regularly. Gathering around the table, remembering the gospel, remembering the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's the most priceless thing we have as a people of God. So I'm going to pray and then the Elements will be passed out, and the, the bread will go first, and then the cup, and please go ahead and eat and drink as they're passed out.